I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres and have you eavesdrop on interesting conversations with your favorite authors. Also, we'll try to keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. After I read uh, Stephen King's review of Tana French's new book, The Witch Elm, I ran right downstairs at R.J. Julia's and picked it up and brought it home and then couldn't put it down and was delighted that Tana agreed uh, to be interviewed on Just the Right Book. So here's our interview. We are joined by Tana French, a renowned author of the best-selling Dublin Murder Squad series. French has won probably every award there is for a mystery or a novelist, the Edgar, the Anthony, the Barry Awards, Los Angeles Times Award for Best Mystery Thriller, the Irish Book Award for Crime Fiction. And Miss French is here today to talk about her latest novel, The Witch Elm, which is her first departure from her detective series, of which there are six. Any Tana French book is highly anticipated, and this book is no exception. It got rave reviews everywhere, was reviewed everywhere, and is already ranked in the top 10 on the New York Times bestseller list. The Witch Elm follows the story of Toby, a young Irish man of privilege and admitted good fortune, whose luck seemingly runs out. After being beaten and left disabled, Toby returns to his family's ancestral home to take care of his dying uncle. The novel takes a turn when a human skull is found in the trunk of an elm tree in the garden. As detectives close in, Toby is forced to face the possibility that his past may not be what he always believed. Mix in good family dysfunction, unreliable narrators, the loss of belief that your good luck is forever, and a jaw-dropping final 40 pages, and you have all the perfect ingredients in Tana French's hands for an exquisite book. Tana, thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. So I guess the um, sort of inevitable question to start with is, why'd you ditch the beloved Dublin murder squad? reasons. One was that I never want to fall into the trap of writing the same book over and over again. And I think if you're writing, especially if you're writing in a genre where the basic framework's fairly fixed, you know, A kills B and C finds <laughs> out who did it, it can be quite easy to fall into that trap. So I wanted to try looking at things from a different angle. And the second reason was kind of uh, the, the other half of that one, was I had looked at the process of a murder investigation from the detective's point of view six times. And I kept thinking about what would that investigation look like from all the other viewpoints of all the other people involved. Mm. You've got victims, witnesses, suspects, perpetrators, and all of their angle on a criminal investigation has to be very different. Like, for the detectives, all this procedural stuff is is a source of power and control. They're completely at home in it. It's a way of putting order back where there's been chaos. But from all those other viewpoints, it's a very different thing. It's this terrifying, incomprehensible thing that barrels into your life and upends it completely. It's got to be very frightening, and it's got to take away your sense of yourself as 
having any control at all, and you're kind of dragged along by it. And I thought it was worth giving a voice to all those other viewpoints, and at different stages in the book, Toby's all of those. So the other thing that was striking to me in thinking about the idea to go to the other side, where you don't have control over what's going on, you know, one of the things that struck me was Toby... The book opens with the role that good luck has played in his life. And one of the things that, you know, you we've learned as you meet lucky people is they often think their good luck is about their ability to do things well, that they actually control their good luck. And the instance of both a burglary and being beaten up was not in Toby's control and then the investigation not being in his control. Do you think those two events, were they the beginning of Toby understanding that he may have never been in control? Absolutely, absolutely. Although for him it's a little bit more intricate because he is somebody who's been lucky in every possible way just from birth. He has rolled all sixes. He is in every position that does, in fact, give him more control over life. You know, he's white, he's male, he's straight, he's from a wealthy family, he's physically and mentally healthy, he's from a loving, supportive family. In every possible way, he's been put in the position where he does have most control over what happens to him and what happens to the world around him. And he started to think that this is due to something inherent mm. in his own personality rather than being a matter of luck. Well, it's not even that he started to think that. He's kind of always taken it for granted right. that things are just going the way they should. And as you say, both the burglary and the murder investigation strip away any vestige of control because the burglary leaves him in a position where he's no longer physically or mentally healthy. He's now in the position where other people are no longer seeing him as the voice of authority and the default reality, he's now subject to other people's judgments of him and being redefined by those judgments of him. So that takes him out of control, not only of what happens to him, but of how he's perceived within the world, what his place is in the world. And then the murder investigation, of course, strips away any vestige of control. He can't control what the detectives do, where they're going with this investigation. He does try very desperately to regain a kind of control by trying to recast himself as the detective who's going to discover mm. what really went on when they can't do it. But you're right that through the process of that, he starts to realize that he has never been the driving force within the world that he saw himself as. And for him, that's devastating. What attracted you, Tana, to having an unreliable narrator? Oh, I love unreliable narratives. I always have to read them and to write them. Yeah. Well, I think they they kind of cut to the heart of one of the main things that the arts are about. Mm. This is about, for me, the the value both in in reading and going to a play and seeing a painting, any any of, of those things, listening to a piece of music, is that you get a glimpse of the world through somebody else's eyes for a certain amount of time, whether it's, you know, days while you read a book or a couple of hours at a play. You're seeing the world through someone else's eyes. You're recognizing that other people may share some of your emotions. You're not alone, but you're also recognizing that your reality isn't the only one, that there are other perspectives out there that are just as real. And this this is at the heart of the huge fundamental importance of the arts. And 
we're, we're all unreliable narrators in some way. We all see the world through our own right. biases, fears, needs. And so when you come to an unreliable narrator, and when you're drawn into that unreliable narrator's world so deeply that you are seeing it the way they see it, in some ways that's as close as you can come to a narrator in the arts is when they're being unreliable and you engage with unreliability. Mm. That's the most intimate relationship with a narrator because you're seeing the world the way they see it. And so I love them. I love reading them and I love writing them. I love reading them also. The other thing an unreliable narrator does in addition to exactly what you're saying, I mean, it's one of the reasons that those of us that are fanatical readers always crave, and that is learning how to live in somebody else's shoes, learning about another perspective. But the other part of reading an unreliable narrator is I think you begin to understand how you, the reader, could be an unreliable narrator of your own story. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's, it's, you start to see that, well, if this person is drawing you into a world that is not objective, that is subjective and skewed and dragged off kilter by all the things they need or want to see in it, then presumably you are to some extent doing the same thing within your reality, uh, no matter how hard you try not to. And that this isn't necessarily always a bad thing, but it's one of the things that makes life very complex. Presumably, everybody else is seeing the world through their own needs, and it, it makes you very aware of the intricacies that are going on around all of us and the different realities that are overlapping and intersecting all the time. It, it leads to this question. You were an actress as your first career. Is, yeah. How did that happen? How did you decide to go from acting to writing novels or books, and then why mysteries? They're not actually that different, especially if you write in the first person, which mm. I most do. But, you know, in both of them, you're creating a character, aiming to make them really three-dimensional and draw your audience in so that they see the whole world of the story through the, that character's eyes. Um, it, it kind of, going back to writing, happened almost by accident. I was... Um, I was acting in theater, and the gigs almost never line up neatly unless you're a theater star, which I was not. They don't do it the way you want them to do it. Ah, no, it doesn't line up quite neatly. Um, I had a few weeks off between two shows, and I got some work on an archaeological dig. And I've always been fascinated by archaeology. I love it. And there was a woods not far from the dig, and I thought um, that would be a great place for kids to play. And then I thought, what if three kids ran in there to play and only one came out and he had no memory of what had happened to the other two. Like, what would that do to his mind as he grew up knowing that he has the solution to that mystery somewhere in there but he can't put his finger on it? And then what if he became a detective and a murder case drew him back to that wood? So I kind of scribbled this idea down on a piece of paper and went off to do the next show and forgot the whole thing. But I found a piece of paper a year later and I thought, wow, I really want to know what happens. So, well, no one else is going to write it for me. <laughs> if I want to know how this ends, I'm probably going to have to do it myself. And I thought, I don't think I can write a whole book because I had never tried before, but I can probably write one scene and then another scene and then, whoa, look, I have a chapter. And gradually I realized that I was turning down theater work in order to finish this book. And if you know any actors, they do not turn down work. Right. So, this was a big deal. I realized I was serious about it, but it was a step-by-step thing that 
that I sort of fell into. And the other half of the question, um, you were saying, why mystery? I think that was kind of inevitable because I've always been fascinated by mystery since I was a kid. I've, like solved, unsolved, real fiction. I don't care. They fasc- They all fascinate me. So I think if I was going to get into writing, it was probably always going to be mystery because I'm always looking for uh, the potential mystery in everything. And I think that's what did it. When I was out on that archaeological dig, instead of stopping at, um, hey, that would be a great place for kids to play, which is sort of where the normal person would leave it. Yeah, exactly. I went, oh, <laughs> oh what if two ki- three kids run in there and you know, two of them never came out? Because uh, I was looking for a potential mystery there. And I think that's what makes turns somebody into a mystery writer. They're looking for that mystery that might be there. The thing that I often find interesting about mysteries is murders and mayhem tend to expose the underbelly of human nature. Oh, yeah. You know, it becomes the mechanism by which whatever's wrong with us manages to seep out. How much of that is an attraction to you, exploring that element of human nature? It's not necessarily the dark underbelly so much that attracts me. It's that if you're interested in mysteries, like I am, one of the great mysteries of the world is the human mind. That's one of the most mysterious things of all. And obviously to somebody who likes people and is interested in people. That's going to be one of the central mysteries. And I think a mystery book is a natural way to explore that. Depending on the mystery book, there are some that are more focused on the darkness and on the gore and on the cruelty and the brutality of it. Uh, to me, that's not what interests me so much. Mm. What interests me isn't so much the whodunit element as the why done it element. And not the, you know, oh, look, you've got a, an evil serial killer who enjoys uh, causing pain. What's interesting to me is more how does somebody who is not evil mm. inherently, who is a normal person, get brought to the point where they feel that it's desirable or necessary to kill another human being? And of course, something that extreme, that intense, is going to be a useful way to explore the most intense and important and powerful emotions that we experience, not necessarily the darkest, although those are going to come in there too, Mm. but the most powerful. And that, I think, is more what attracts me to it. I think when I was talking about the underbelly, to me, putting aside pure evil, and I thought about that as I was reading this, and you're trying to think about each character and their motivation and and what's informed how they operate, it's about... Mm sort of the weakness in each of us, the the kind of complicated, you know, we're good people. And if you asked us if we would do the right thing, we would always say we would do the right thing. Yet there's this other little nerve or fiber that's hit. That's what, to me, makes your books so fascinating is it goes to those subtle, subtle elements. Well, there's a bit, definitely, where one of the characters, she they're, they're discussing, you know, what's the worst thing you've ever done, and does that make you a bad person, mm. or are you a good person? And one of the characters describes something that she's done, and she says, well, but if luck had gone a little bit differently, if, if something random had happened slightly differently, then I would never have done this. But that wouldn't make me a better person. It would just mean that I happen to have a little bit of better luck on mm. that day. I wouldn't be any better as a person. So in this book, anyway, there's, there's a certain amount of exploration of how much 
is being a good person or a bad person linked to our luck? Like, if I'm a good person, is it simply because nothing has ever happened to hit me directly on that weak spot? So do you consider yourself a lucky person? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. But I think, in many ways, I've been hugely lucky. But I think everybody has ways in which they've rolled the six, and everybody has ways in which they've rolled the one. Mm. And the important part, and what I was trying to look at in this book, is is what we do with that. Because luck, too much luck, can have a really bad effect on empathy, I think. If you grow up always lucky in one certain area of your life, it can be very easy to discount the experiences of people who haven't been that lucky and to consider them not to be real. And that's what happens to Toby. You know, he's always been enormously lucky in one way or another, and, and he dismisses any experience that doesn't gel with his view of what reality is. I mean, the, one, the, the example I, I use is that I was lucky enough to have a pretty happy, loving, loved childhood. And that meant that as I grew up, when someone, I was a teenager, if somebody would tell me something about a really hideous childhood that they'd had, there would be a part of me that was going, ah, no, it can't, surely it can't have been that bad. They've got to be exaggerating a little bit. Not because I thought the person was lying, but simply because this was so far outside my frame of reference that my mom just couldn't take it in as real. No, I mean, I grew up and I caught on to myself and realized that my reality doesn't actually define everybody else's. But that's one of the things that started me thinking about somebody who's been almost too lucky in too many ways. What's that going to do to your sense of empathy? As you look around at the world around you and as you assess other people's experiences, can too much luck make it harder for you to accept other people's experiences as real? So... When I recognize that in most ways I've been really lucky, I take that as almost a warning to not let that turn me deaf and blind mm. to the fact that have different realities and are living in a different world. And how typical do you think that is? Do you think most or many people who are lucky have a hard time getting to that place? I don't know. I think the other thing is that all of us are unlucky in some ways. You know, all of us have ways in which we're on the, the flip side of that coin and are going, hang on. How come other people are not recognizing or are refusing to accept that my experience is real? How come people are dismissing that as something that doesn't count or isn't really that important or didn't really happen that way? And I think sometimes the hard part can be making that connection that, hang on, they're dismissing my experience that way. Am I doing that to other people? Mm. And I think it's an essential part of growing up. I don't think everybody necessarily does it. But I think everybody probably needs to make that leap at some point. You know, and it made me wonder, so you open where Toby is obviously a lucky guy. There's lots of evidence of it. Then he's the victim of this burglary. He has post-traumatic syndrome. Yeah. To what extent is the fact that he is no longer who he was impact how he functions? devastating. Most people have in one way or another realized that they are at risk in the world, that they are not necessarily going to be the ones in power and rolling sixes all the time, and they're aware that they need to be protecting themselves. Toby's never had any inkling of this. Mm. So for his world to be invaded in that way is 
absolutely devastating, and he doesn't deal with it very well at all. No. He, I mean, he spends the rest of the book trying to reclaim little pieces of himself and, and, and put his old self back together. He's not able to move on and go, okay, this is my new self now. What do I do with it? He's going back to the you know, ancestral home, his ancestral childhood home, hoping that seeing his cousins will help him to reconstitute himself because they knew him when he was a child, hoping that somehow he'll be able to reclaim who he was because that's the only way he can possibly imagine being. That response prompts two other uh, questions. One is his uncle, Hugo. So Toby's dealing with a a brain trauma. His uncle, Hugo, has been diagnosed with brain cancer. And yet... Hugo decides to take this new state of his being as virtually a dying man and decides to move forward from there. The the exact opposite of Toby trying to retrieve something that's seemingly gone. Yes. Hugo has, he has a line where he says I mean, that you get used to being yourself and it can take some great upheaval to crack that shell open and make you discover what's underneath it. And he uses the fact that his, I mean, his self is being eroded in a very literal way. His mind is being eroded literally as the book goes on. But he decides to use this as a way to find something new that he can be and to turn himself into something else in his last days. And the other character in the novel, to me, is Ivy House, the ancestral home that Hugo is now living in that Toby retreats to. And it, too, starts the the book one way as a grand ancestral home, the repository of idyllic childhoods, and then it, too, gets literally dug up and and transformed. Yes, and it turns out that, of course, it's possible that it never was what Toby thought it was, <laughs> which is an extra upheaval for him and an extra trauma, because when a skull turns up down the trunk of a tree in the back garden of the house, he is forced to accept that this, this might not be this idyllic, you know, strawberry picnics and teenage parties and mud forts and all this stuff. It might not just be what he's been remembering and what he's been relying on to help him you know, come, get back in, in contact with his old self. It might always have been something more intricate and darker and more complicated and where other people were having experiences entirely different from his own. And it does get searched, get dug up, get invaded and, and ripped apart in much the same way as Toby himself does. One of the things that I've thought about recently, you know, in my family, there are six kids. And if you asked us to describe a family circumstance, we would each describe it differently, right? You know, we would say my mother said that or I was treated favorably or they were treated, whatever, whatever that siblings do that recreates, as you say, their own unreliable narration. And I've wondered what the impact of having videos and all the other documentation we have of what really went on, will that mean that it'll be harder for us to escape into our own version of history or family life? 
Oh, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to make a difference. <laughs> because I think, of course, there will be... No, but there will be... There, there are the moments where, you know, I'm saying to my brother, no, we did that when we were seven. And he's going, no, we were, it must have been at least nine. You right. know, and there's... Yeah, of course, that stuff will be solved by the amount of video and the emails and the Facebook posts and the this, that, and the other. But at the deeper level, it's not going to make any difference. Right. Because when you both see, you know, the video of that birthday party, what one of you is remembering is, oh, I hated that day so much because I felt like everybody was being mean to me. Because And what another of you is remembering is, oh, that was such a great day because I was getting on so well with my sister that day and we had this wonderful secret. And another of you will be remembering something different, even if you all watch the same video. So I think that the, our, our own reality will still have just as much force. It'll just be at the, the levels of subtext mm. rather than at the more literal levels. You know, I often think of this short story, and I, I wish I could find it uh, so I could give credit to the author, but it's two sisters, and one has long hair, one has short hair. And in the first one, uh, the the um, sister watching from the stairs with short hair envies the um, kind of intimacy between her mother and her sister as her mother braids her hair every morning and is just incredibly envious and jealous of that relationship. And the second part is narrated by the sister with the braids feeling absolutely controlled and diminished (laughs) by her mother braiding her hair and envies the... um, freedom and independence of her sister on the stairs. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> They're both seeing entirely different scenarios play themselves out in the identical facts. So I think there's always going to be that. We're always going to be um, seeing the world through our own lens and that no amount of video that can change that. We'll get right back to my conversation with Tana French in a minute. I'd like to take a short break to tell you about today's sponsor, which is actually a book. So that makes sense. Uh, And the name of the book is The Gift That I Can Give by Kathy Lee Gifford. And here's some quotes about her book. Uh, This is from Hoda from the Today Show. It's never too early to get advice from Kathy Lee. Of course, Kathy Lee's her pal. Uh, This beautiful book is full of life lessons for your little one. My Haley loves it. Uh, Savannah Guthrie, another pal, uh, says pictures are adorable. The message is important, uh, teaching kids to be generous with their hearts. Here's here's what I got. Um, it's a picture book, so it's for little kids. But what what it does is, you know, a lot of times when you talk to kids, you say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? What this picture book by Kathy Lee Gifford reminds us to say is instead to say, what do you love to do? And what that question suggests is that each kid has their own gift. And by asking them what they love to do, you're encouraging them to develop their own gift and be their person. And so, I, you know, I, I like that message. I think it makes sense. It's a way for kids to take some pride in their own identity so I, I, I get why people like Hoda and Savannah like the book, but I can see how as a parent you'd like to encourage that message. So for the uh, entire month of November, our listeners can get 30% off 
of this book, The Gift That I Can Give by Kathy Lee Gifford, just by entering the code JTRB. Visit store.faithgateway.com, store.faithgateway.com, and apply the code JTRB, and you can buy the book and get 30% off. How fun is that? Do you ever think, Ton, of going back to acting? Uh, I miss it. I, I do. I mean, I like the social aspect as well. There's a bunch of you together, and you're going for a pint after the show and mm. chatting about it. But also on a more practical level, if you have a bad day when you're in a show, then one of the other people in the scene is going to throw something at you that helps you come unstuck and discover something, or the director will give you a suggestion or redirect you to, to that breakthrough. And it's great. And that's what I was used to. And now if I have a day when I'm stuck and nothing's working, it's, it's me and a pen and paper, and I've got to get out of it my own way. You know, there's no director to go, do you know what you should try now? <laughs> How have you adjusted to the solitary life of a writer? Um, I mean, it's not very solitary. I've got little kids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How old are your kids? They're five and nine. So it's, oh, yeah. It hasn't been all that solitary for the last nine years, I've yeah, got to say. Yeah, I can but see that. The, the, well, but I'm lucky as well. I have my husband is my first editor, and he um, directs short films and is very good structurally, which is mm. kind of my weak point. So he's very good at, when I get stuck, he's really, really good at giving me that little directorial poke in the right direction, which as an actor, I really appreciate, and it, it, it makes a huge difference to me. I think I've only partially adjusted because I'm lucky enough to have somebody like that there who's going, mm, you can't set that scene there because it's too powerful a location, and you're not going to use it again. If you want to use that location once, you've got to take it straight through the book. Stuff like that, that, wow. that directorial overview. That's so huge. To have that. It's great to have. Yeah. And your kids are too young to run the story by them. <laughs> Probably not. Probably skulls down trees might be a little bit more than they need. I don't know. How old was Zach when he discovered the the nephew, Toby's nephew, when he discovered the, uh, not nephew, but uh, uh, son of his cousin? Give or take nephew, yeah. He's six, but it's probably not really the way he needed his weekend to go either. Yeah, you know what, 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 what it made me think about, Tana, is would be fun to think about Zach's perspective on the story. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because kids' perspectives always reminds me of, um, I don't know if you have in America, but we have um, urban foxes in Dublin where they're, you know, you don't see them during the daytime, but at night you'll hear the foxes fighting or arguing or, you know, mating or courting and doing their thing. And they're living an entirely different life. They have an entirely different world going on, parallel to ours, at a different, completely different stratum, but occupying the same space. And sometimes I feel like kids are doing the same thing. Mm. They're living in a, an entire world of their own that's parallel to ours, and it intersects every now and then, like when they need feeding. But most of the time, they're seeing an entirely different world in the same place that we're looking at. I remember that from when I was a kid. You know, I remember running around with my best friends, and we were definitely seeing the world differently, and our landmarks were different, and our perspectives on things were different. So, yeah, I think from Zach's perspective, this book would look like a very different thing. Yeah, and I, I sometimes wish that there was a way we could retrieve some of that perspective and innocence as we look at the world. I mean, I'm a 70-year-old woman. I think that the kind of 
innocence that kids have is not a perspective that necessarily has to be lost. I think it depends on what angle of the innocence. Mm. I think there is one thing that unfortunately I think has to go is the single-mindedness and single-heartedness right. which with, they, which, with which they go at things. I mean, I can remember when the only thought in my mind or my body was, I want to get to the top of that tree today. Mm. That's it. That's all there is. And when you're an adult, I think because you're dealing with real life, a part of you is remembering that, okay, I've got to pick up this kid from their friend this hour, and, whoa, did I pay the electricity bill? And, you know, a part of your brain is, is occupied with just the minutiae of day-to-day life. And I think that wholeheartedness of kids, just, it isn't practical. Mm. But I think there are, oh, yeah, there are definitely angles, uh, aspects of the way kids see life that, the more we can hold on to, the better. Mm. There was a there was a book that I read this summer, and an author I interviewed, this man Alan Lightman, who wrote a book in praise of wasted time. And oh yes, and one of the things that he thinks we need to retrieve in this you know world where we are being pecked to death by birds called tweets and emails and and everything else mm-hmm. is to create that isolation and. Not the innocence. I think you're right. It's not the innocence of childhood. It's it's the capacity for joy by being removed from everything. I think also the capacity for uh, being absolutely absorbed in the moment. You know, not exactly being too distracted by that electricity bill and all that stuff. I mean, and having kids is really great for that because I can't tell you the number of times I've tried to get from like here to the shops, which should not be a long walk, but ends up being triple its length if you have to pick up every city and discuss it and rehome <laughs> it, and you have to jump in every pile of leaves and yeah. probably every puddle, and you have to you know, examine the watering can that's outside some neighbor's. You know, when you're doing that, when you're operating with little kids, you do rediscover that moment-by-moment mm-hmm. attention yeah. where you can be absolutely focused. And you know, assuming that you're not hurrying anywhere today, you can pick up and discuss and rehome every snail they use to see between here and the shop. It, it doesn't work well when you have 10 minutes to get from here to there and they still want that sort of why this and what about that. Yep. That's when the adult world and the child world clash. Yeah. How do you structure your writing time, given that you have two two young children? Uh I mean, in an ideal world, before I had them, I'd write till like 3 in the morning and then sleep till 10 or 11. That's, I'm basically nocturnal. That's my ideal writing schedule. But nowadays, I write when they're out of my hair. Like yeah. when they're in school, I write. When they're not, I goof off with them. Right, right. And before I ask the last question, I should ask you the logical question. Uh, where did the notion of the witch elm come from? That's actually from a true story. Back in 1943, I think it was, a bunch of kids playing in a wood in England found a skull, which turned out to be part of the the full skeleton of a woman who had died about 18 months before. And nobody to this day knows who she is or who had put her down the trunk of a witch elm, which is where they found her skull and her skeleton. And over the next years, and up until fairly recently, graffiti started appearing in the area saying, who put Bella in the witch elm? Where the name Bella came from, nobody knows. And again, this is still an unsolved mystery. And my brother sent me a link to this story with a note saying, this sounds like a kind of French novel. And I mean, I didn't know whether to be flattered or disturbed. Like, <laughs> gee, thanks. <laughs> As it turned out, he was kind of right. 
because around that time I had been thinking a lot about a next book and about that that idea of the link between luck and empathy and how luck can be an impediment to empathy and it sort of clicked together possibly because I don't actually know how to write a book without throwing a dead body in there to focus the action. <laughs> so when he sent me a link to a dead body, it sort of clicked together with all the other stuff I was looking at and turned into this book. And do you know where the book's going to go when you start? Oh, no, no. I do not have a clue. I have huge respect and a fair amount of envy for those writers who have the whole outline, like chapter by chapter, they know where everything's going to pan out, because at least they know there's a book in there somewhere. And I tend to start with like a really clear sense of the narrator, a core location, and a very basic premise. And then I just dive in and hope there's a book in there somewhere. I figure it has to do with the acting thing, with coming from acting, mm. because it makes me so character-based. The plot comes from the characters rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. And to write those characters for a while before I can figure out who would do what and to whom and why and oh my god that's who that's who done it or that's why and but it takes me a while to figure out which makes for an awful lot of rewriting when suddenly in chapter six you realize something that you completely miss and you have to go back and rewrite the whole of chapter three but it's the only way that works for me does it also make you worry more than someone who might have an outline that oh my goodness what if this really isn't a story time. I'm going, what if there's no book there? But I think, I, I hope it has its upside as well, in that a lot of stuff in the book comes to me as a surprise, mm. a kind of a revelation. Oh my God, this happens. Of course this happens. And I hope that a little bit of this filters through to the readers, mm. because it's such a surprise to me. I don't read that many mysteries. And what prompted me to pick up your book and then when I was so excited at the prospect of having a conversation with you was a result of Stephen King's review. And as I know from his publisher, he never does or rarely does reviews. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but this summer I also read his book on writing, which I had been carrying from one place to the other with the intention of reading for years. And then finally yeah. read it, and I thought, oh, my God, this guy's talent is on so many damn levels, never mind, you know, these extraordinary books and genre that he's created, but his his understanding of the craft and his kind of um, self-deprecating understanding of human nature. I mean, it's just, there's a lot to admire in this man. Yeah, people keep saying it is amazing, so yeah. I would encourage you, if you're a fan of his, I would encourage you, because it gives you even a fuller dimension uh, about him. Right. Uh, yeah, I should read that. That sounds like a fascinating one. I, it, yeah, for some reason, Get on I, it! Just, Get on it! Yeah, it has <laughs> somehow made it to the top of the, the teetering stack of books that's my to be read. Yeah, I mean, we could go on. I'd love to talk with you more about, like, how you decide what to read and when you read. Um, but what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on a new book. Um, I'm not at the point where it's sort of coalesced enough that I can say anything remotely coherent about it. The only thing I know right, is that I would like this one to be comparatively short. Mm. And this is partly because, man, The Witch Elm is a big, long book, but also because I'm a big admirer of authors who are succinct and concise mm. and clean and can pack so much into little space. Like, look at Downwood Winter's Bone, right? That is a short book, right. but it packs such 
Sasha Punch, or Don't Lie in the Spinning Heart, or, or Charles Portis' True Grit. These are all short books, but not a word is wasted, and they pack much more punch than a whole lot of much longer books. And I, I mean, succinct is not one of my main talents, right? <laughs> but I would love to try it and to just see if I can try and condense like that with not a wasted word. And I don't know if I can do this. I can. I, I hate. I, I kind of hesitate even to say this because I've got this mental image of me handing something in in a year and a half or whatever it is, and my editor going, "That's a hundred and fifty thousand words," and me going, "But it's shorter than the other ones were." <laughs> So I don't know if I can actually try to do it, but I'd like to try. Will it be interesting also whether the process will be to write the fatter version and then bring it down or try to write it <laughs> in, a, in a short way right from the get-go? Well, I'm trying to write it short right from the get-go because for me, the style is shaped very much by the narrator, the protagonist. Mm-hmm. The way they think is the way you need to write. So they need to be tight. Right. The character needs to be somebody who thinks this way mm. in this concise, much more rooted, much less kind of um, convoluted way. Otherwise, it's not going to gel. It's, it's not going to work that way. So I have to start from there. Like the reason the witch home was so kind of convoluted and tangled was because that's the way Toby's mind is working. So the style had to match the way he thinks. So I need to start from somebody who doesn't think that way. Do your kids like to read? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Um, the older one in particular, you know that, that kind of total immersion reading that you can only get when you're a kid and you mm. don't have all the other stuff at you? Oh, yeah. You, they, they love to read. Do you read to them still? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In one of the interviews I read that you had, you described being up a tree with an apple and not leaving until the book was done. And uh, I miss that. I, you know, and I was thinking about just that, that, man, if we could create that kind of you know, hole in the world between here and there where we could run away and run up a tree with an apple and and finish our book. Wouldn't that be swell? Put the rest of the world on pause and all you need is a tree and an apple in a book. (laughs) All right. That's what we're going to work on. (laughs) Uh, Let me ask you the question I always close in our conversations with authors. What would you consider the book that changed your life? Ah, okay. Interesting. There are a few of them. Probably one of the main ones, at least from a a writing perspective, has to be The Secret History, Donna Tartt, because she, oh man, she just smashed open every boundary Mm. that I had taken for granted. You know, this idea that there's literature on one side, and it's got probably not that much plot, but it's got great writing and thematic depth and three-dimensional characterization. And on the other side of the boundary, you've got genre, which has a gripping plot and rips along and probably has a lot of action to it and, or a lot of um, high-impact moments, but doesn't necessarily have great writing or you know, thematic depth or any of that other stuff. She just completely blew that away. And also the idea of what was a, a fitting setting for literature and for mystery, the idea of that those those college friendships that you have when mm. you're moving away from your birth family but you haven't started creating uh, another family of your own yet, the power and the intensity that those college friendships have when they are the closest thing to you, they are your core circle. She, I was in college when I read it, and she gave that world a weight and a power that I had mm. never seen done in writing before, the understanding of how important this can be. And the secret history, it's 
both a great work of literature and it's a great mystery book and absolutely doesn't compromise on either one. Right. And she just created an entirely different space for writing, I think, that a lot of my generation have been, have been playing in ever since. Well, you know, it's interesting, Tana, that you say that because as I was reading your book, I thought there aren't as many what I would call literary mysteries as I would describe Donna Tartt's book, as one might think. And there are a lot of great mysteries that are very, very well written. Um, you know, for sure, there's, you know, Michael Conley, there's millions of, of yeah. there's plenty of writers that are literary mystery writers, but the complexity of your novels reminds me of the complexity of her novels. Oh, man, thank you very much. No, I, I mean that. I, you. I, you know, when I think of Secret History, or even the goldfinch, where she deals with these same psychological possibilities that exist in human nature, as do you. Again, thank you so much. That is a huge compliment, because again, when I read The Secret History, I was going, I want to read books like this all the time, Mm. that have absolutely no time for any limitations or boundaries, and that bite off as much as they can possibly chew and that want to have the writing and the characters and the themes and and utter originality and uh, yeah i i wanted to read books like that and so obviously i'm going to aim to write them to what extent i succeed is, is a whole other question great well tana i cannot thank you enough for taking the time i know i'm between you and dinner and maybe even a drink so <laughs> I'll be respectful of your time, but um, thank you for all the pleasure you've brought to um, readers in my bookstore who cannot wait for your book. This this book makes them as happy or even happier as your other books, and we look forward to your tight little book. That'll be an interesting exercise, so I look forward to picking. Maybe I'll get a galley of it early on. I hope so. I'll, I'll Yeah, and thank you so much for having me on. And also, thank you to you as a bookstore owner as well. Thanks again so much to Tana French for joining us on Just the Right Book. Her new book, The Witch Elm, is available now. And remember, you have just until December 9th to get 10% off of one Just the Right Book subscription or 15% off for two subscriptions. Just go to justtherightbook.com Enter promo code PODCAST10 or PODCAST15. Of course, I think it's a perfect gift for any book lover on your holiday list. Please continue to send us your thoughts and emails. You can email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com or message us on our Facebook page. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.